Yes, I know. I know. I'm going probably where I shouldn't be going. A third rail? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Hi, everybody. Brian Sussman here. Brian Sussman Show. Thanks for joining me. I am venturing into territory that is oft misunderstood. Just for going there, people will call me names, I'm sure, but I'm trying to look at this through a lens of rationality. So here in California, there is a panel that has been put together by the State Assembly, a panel of experts that has recommended reparations for slavery. They want reparations. They want an apology. Now, this panel was set up by Governor Gavin Newsom in 2020, and it approved recommendations over the weekend for reparations for slavery plus an apology. Now, to be Sure, to be fair, to be even-handed here, the state of California entered the Union as a free state in 1850. So it was not a slave state, but it was a free state, and that's how it entered the Union. California's Reparations Task Force, as this force is called, voted to recommend that the state issue first a formal apology for slavery and potentially provide billions of dollars in cash payments in an effort to enact remedies and compensation for descendants of African Americans who were enslaved in the United States. So now, this vote, by the way, was public meeting in Oakland. It marks the beginning of the end of this nine-member panel's two-year process to craft a report recommending, and everyone knew they would eventually get to this place, uh, recommending reparations for slavery. So this now is due to hit the state legislature in California July 1st. That means there'll be a vote by the legislature. I don't know how anyone could vote against this. Even if you're one who says, we don't have the money. If you vote against it, you'll be deemed a racist kind of a no-win situation. Now, again, and by the way, California doesn't have the money for this. The panel argued that California must apologize for slavery because it had racist governors in the past that enforced the federal fugitive slave law, which was not a good law. It required escaped slaves to be returned to their purported owners in the South. So that was, even though California entered the Union as a free state, it did have the fugitive federal slave law on the books. It was a federal law. I don't know how California could have avoided that law other than just say, we're not going to enforce it. I don't know what the repercussions would that have been back in the day, but I'm just telling you the truth as we see it. I'm giving you the facts and And we can build our arguments from there. This task force, by the way, was established in California under a law in the wake of the George Floyd riots and the Black Lives Matter movement, which, as you remember, in 2020, these were big, high-level, day-after-day-in-the-news issues. The task force, made up primarily of black members, it's not demographically representative of the state's population, The panel also considered post-slavery discrimination 
in the process. So it's it's more than just your descendants were slaves. It has to do with discrimination that has occurred since then, which has indeed harmed black people. But among these post-slavery discriminations, they also point out the mass incarceration in prisons in California of predominantly black men. So again, I'm just laying all of this out for you. The calculation each black resident of the state is potentially owed is $1.2 million. It's based on disparities in life expectancy for black people uh, and the estimated costs of over-policing and housing discrimination and a number of other factors. But the bottom line is each African-American individual is to receive, this is what they're recommending, $1.2 million. It's unclear how the state will afford this staggering cost. It's several times the state budget when you add it all up. And by the way, the state budget in California was last year, they said, well, we have a $100 million surplus, to which I and many others said, yeah, that's on paper. It's a surplus on paper, but it's not like we have a $100 million billion in the bank. Well, lo and behold, we were right. So they went from a $100 billion surplus last year to a $22.5 billion deficit in the current fiscal year. So... California doesn't have this money, but they're going forward with this plan. The panel also recommended other policy changes. Uh, The legislature is going to continue recommendations on all of this before voting. But the process, let's be realistic here. The process has received so much media attention that there will be extreme pressure to act. The Republicans in California are a distinct minority in the legislature. It's a one-party rule state. So even if, even if every Republican in the legislature said no, it's, it's still going to pass. But I think the Republicans are being placed in between a rock and a hard place, and most of them, I'm guessing, will, will vote for this. Because again, what the left does is they wrap you up in a smear. It's Nancy Pelosi's wrap-up smear. They, they, they target you, they label you, they throw names at you, and then they wrap you up in that, and you have nowhere to run, hide, rebut, explain your way out, etc. It's the wrap-up smear. It's an incredible tactic. So let's go from here. I am going to start at a website. It's entitled the National African American Reparations Commission. These people are for reparations, but what they see going on, for example, in California and in most of the discussions involving reparations for African Americans, they feel is a, quote, bad idea. And they have a whole bunch of reasons why they feel these things are bad ideas. And I'm just going to tick off their their top ten. First of all, they say reparations is based on white history. Because when you look at other bills that have gone forward regarding this, well, forget other bills. Let's talk about the California bill. The California bill states that more than 4 million Africans and their descendants were enslaved in the United States. 
and the colonies that became the United States between 1619 and 1865. That is actually a staggering number. And, and by the way, it excludes the descendants of the African Americans who were brought into the United States of America. Four million plus descendants is a staggering number. Now, I always like to point out that there were two Americas. There were two distinct Americas. There was Puritan New England, which did not believe in slavery. The Christians that came over from England and their like did not believe in slavery. They saw it as abhorrent and grossly, grossly in conflict with the Word of God. But then there were the Carolinas, where the slogan was, quote, damn your soul, grow tobacco. So you have two Americas. And even at the founding of our nation, there were, um, there were founders of this nation who owned slaves. And I'm not going to I'm not going to make excuses for that behavior. Some might say, well, they were benevolent slave owners. Well, they were slave owners nonetheless. I know that there were some slave owners who actually offered their, their slaves freedom. And many of, the, many of the slaves were more content staying with their owners because they were decent people and they felt that going away from the care and, uh, and, and security of the plantation would expose them to great harm. All I'm saying, friends, is this. Slavery is awful. It is a scar upon the land of America. There's no question about that. It's awful. It's not, it was not God's plan for people to be enslaved, although... God, in his infinite wisdom, if you read, for example, the Old Testament and even the New, there always has been slavery. And it's come in many shapes and many sizes and for many reasons. But that's not to say that God approves of it. I think God just understands human nature and understands the sinful side of human nature and knows that there, there, was, there are always going to be horrible problems like that on this planet. But I continue down the list here. This article goes on to say there are better ways to provide uh, reparations, generation-based reparations, they're suggesting. Perhaps the reparations should be paid according to how many generations of black families lived in America. One lump sum for everybody black. So they're saying if one of your parents is white, do you get a half check? Or does the white side of your family that benefited from the white supremacy negate the impact on the black half? They're saying one lump sum for everybody. And they say get reparations for people who were not enslaved. Because slavery was constitutional, a legal argument for reparations would probably fall in the American court. But the Supreme Court has ruled that school districts, cities, lending institutions, state legislatures, and federal government and local voting boards illegally discriminate against all black Americans. And then they also say, <laughs> along, along with all this, again, this is the National African American Reparations Commission, they're saying white people are eventually going to end up getting all the money. So 
while they make their points, I get this overwhelming sense as I read this article that despite whatever I might say or what you might say to these people, for example, I would say, I'm not a racist. No one in my family has ever been a racist. In fact, when my grandfather came over from Russia, I'm sure he was discriminated against in very vile ways because he was Jewish. And, and anyone who's Jewish has experienced racism and anti-Semitism at some point in their time in their own life. I'm not trying to make comparisons to, to the damage done by others regarding black Americans. I'm just saying, you can't say I'm a racist. And, and especially when you look at the composition of my family today, as an older guy with, with four kids and grandkids, etc., that, that's just not me. And there are millions and millions of people like me that weren't around back then. But I just get this overwhelming sense as I read this article. It's actually, I'm not going to say hurtful, but it's just sad that I have this feeling they would label me as a racist and therefore disqualify any thoughts I even have on the matter, even if my thoughts are purely economical. Let me turn to another article. This is from The Atlantic magazine, and The Atlantic is hardly a bastion of conservatism. It's very liberal. But they have an article. This was written by David Frum. David Frum wrote this in 2014. It's entitled The Impossibility of Reparations. And I'm just going to skim a few points here that he makes. He says this program of reparations will work severe inequities. So in other words, there's going to be stuff that comes out of this that is hardly equitable. He says affirmative actions, quirks, and injustices are notorious, but they will be nothing compared to the strange consequences of a reparations program. Not all black people are poor. Not all black people are rich. Does Oprah have a house cleaner? Who changes the diapers of Beyonce's baby? Their wages will be taxed and the proceeds, will their wages be taxed and the proceeds redirected to their employers? So in other words, well, let me continue. With the target population, will all receive the same? Same per person or same per family? Or there will be, or will there be adjustment for need? How will the need be measured? Will convicted criminals be eligible? If not, the program will exclude perhaps one million African Americans. If yes, the program would potentially tax victims and families of the murdered for the benefit of their assailants. Okay, he's, he's making some points that are really worthwhile and need to be thought through. And that's why the reparations website I was just quoting from says, dismiss all of it, just give out the money, period. Oprah gets her $1.2 million. Beyonce gets her $1.2 million. So the question in this article is, if reparations were somehow delivered communally and collectively, disparities of wealth and power and political influence within black America will become even more urgent. Simply put, when government spends money on complex programs, this is amazing, this is coming from The Atlantic, but then again, this is also 2014, so you know, nine years ago. 
Simply put, when government spends money on complex programs, the people who provide the service usually end up with much more sway over the spending than the spending's intended beneficiaries. The poorer the beneficiaries, the more powerful this rule holds. And it is held strongest of all in programs intended to aid the black poor. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Well, it's just like, it's appalling to think about the billions of dollars we spend all over the world in aid. Look at all this money that's gone to Ukraine. The vast majority of it is given carte blanche. We give a check, we come home, we feel good about ourselves, and who gets the money? The oligarchs, the rulers, the kingpins. It doesn't trickle down to the, to the people. And the, the same with here in America. All of these programs, all of these nonprofits, all these quote-unquote stakeholder organizations that are supposedly helping the poor, they're the ones making bank off this. They're the ones making a good living. It just doesn't work. On paper, ah, maybe you could rationalize it, but it doesn't work. It's just like communism. Every time it's employed, it's never worked. And people to this day really think, hey, man, we can just do it better. Let me share some statistics with you regarding easy money, because in the event we give $1.2 million to each African-American in terms of reparations, these people, by and large, would be better off not receiving any money. And I'm serious about this, because most people, unless you are properly trained, you don't know how to spend that kind of money. Unless you've been properly trained, and how would you be properly trained? Generally, either an incredible mentee or a mentor or life experience. Life experience, the ups and downs of life, misspending your money, mishandling your money, making mistakes, that will give you wisdom. Most people can't handle this money. Let me give you just one example. I look at all of these uh, tremendous athletes, Tremendous athletes who are making, you know, here they are, 20, 21, 22 years old, and suddenly millions of dollars. The NFL does provide financial counsel. I'm sure the NBA, all the sports probably do. I had a, a friend, I had a friend, I won't mention his name, who was a business agent, prominent business agent in the world of sports. And he told me that generally speaking, most of his clients refuse financial advice. It's offered. It's it's, they, they implore, please listen to us. We want you to be a healthy, vital member of society. When you leave the game, we want you to have money in your pocket and money that will hold you through the rest of your life. Most players, at least according to this prominent friend, did not want any of that information. But I'm looking right now, this is the American Bankruptcy Institute. According to a working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research, 16% of NFL players file for bankruptcy within 12 years of retiring. A Sports Illustrated article reports that 78% of NFL players and 60% of NBA players face serious financial hardships after retirement. Average salary in the NBA is $7 million. I don't know what it is in the NFL, not quite that much, but nonetheless, why do so many athletes wind up going bankrupt? 
Well, it's because they get the money early. They're going through life. They get the money. They've never had a car, so the first car they buy is a, is a Porsche. They've never had a home, so the first home they buy is the multi-million dollar mansion with doors that are extra high to accommodate their height. Do you see what I'm saying? And they buy these houses oftentimes in, in markets where they overpay. And then when it's time to move to the next city to join the next team, they can't sell the house, so they lose money on the house. They're just not, they're not appropriately trained to deal with money. Plus, most athletes trust the wrong financial advisor. They become natural targets for smooth-talking con men in a nice suit. And when you don't have a business background or a finance background or life experience, it's easy to get conned. And most athletes are attracted to flashy investments, especially restaurants, which are risky investments, and other things of that nature. Whether it's new technology, a restaurant with their name on it, many invested ideas that do not have great long-term business model uh, success. Okay, here, here you go. Dan Marino. Dan Marino was the local Pittsburgh kid, earned millions in the NFL as a quarterback, and then got out of uh, the game, became a studio analyst for CBS, lost millions by investing in a company called Digital Domain. There are so, Kurt Schilling. These are not black guys. These are white guys. Saw a future in video games, spent $50 million in creating his own company. Lost out on his $50 million. I mean, th the stories just go on and on and on. But how about lottery winners? My gosh. Most lottery dreams uh, share lots of common themes. Yachts, lobster tails, big tips, fast cars, fast life, mansion for mom, all that kind of stuff. But mountains and mountains of money. This is unearned money go to waste so quickly. Again, just like with the athletes, con artists, supposed charity cases, resentful friends and family. I met a guy once who, he was a caller to my radio show. He won a very large sum of money in the lottery and he had a business background. The first thing he met with an attorney and the first thing he did was give everyone in his family, I think it was $10,000. He wrote them all $10,000 checks. And the checks came with a contract that said, I will give you this money under this condition. You promise me under, I don't know what kind of penalty was involved, but you will promise me you will never, ever talk to me about money ever. And he did this to all his extended family because he thought these are a bunch of moochers and they're going to be hitting me up for this, that, and the other. And I believe everybody took their $10,000. I've known other people who have had to, I met a guy at a golf course one time and he, cha he changed his identity because of all the people that were trying to work their way into his lucky fortune. Reparations, I think, will cause more pain than good. I think it's also going to whip up animosity and further divide us. It's not going to be a uniter. It's going to be a divider. Uh, you know what the real answer is? It's a spiritual answer. 
It's an answer that people really come to the end of themselves and realize money's not going to buy you happiness. Your only happiness can be found in the one who brings eternal life. And you know who I'm talking about. For those of you who are regular listeners of the program, I'm talking about Jesus. And I'm talking about briansussman.com, my website, my Facebook page, Brian Sussman Show, and my Instagram, Daily Doses of Inspiration, Brian Sussman Show. God bless you, my friends. Really appreciate you listening. If you listened and you liked, please let me know. Until next time.